Well, good morning. My name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors at Christ Central. I have the awesome privilege to uh, share with you God's Word uh, this morning. I'm going to actually open with a story. Uh, some of our uh, country's history, a story is probably familiar to most, if not all of us, and then we'll uh, open up the text. But the story is set in, nine, in, uh, excuse me, in 1620. Uh, so in 1620, a small ship called the Mayflower uh, left Plymouth, England on its way to the New World, uh, full of 102 passengers. Uh, we call them pilgrims. Uh, and they were coming to the New World to find land and prosperity. They had high hopes that it was going to be a wonderful future for them and their families. The crew arrived in Massachusetts uh, in December, in the middle of winter, and they, the crew decided to stay on the ship through the winter because of uh, the harsh conditions in Massachusetts and with hopes of survival. Uh, they banded together on the ship. Only about half the crew survived uh, the harsh winter. And when they finally came ashore in March, the pilgrims were surprised to be greeted uh, by a Native American named Squanto. Squanto was uh, a member of the Wampanoag tribe, uh, and he greeted uh, the pilgrims and, and graciously taught them how to live off the land. And this, this, uh, re- this uh, gracious uh, gift that he gave them formed this long-lasting relationship. About 50 years that these people, uh, the pilgrims and the Wampanoag tribe, uh, fellowshiped together. In November of that year, after the pilgrims' first successful harvest, the, the pilgrims and the Wampanoag in- Indians shared a, a Thanksgiving meal, a harvest meal. Uh, it lasted for about three days, and they were celebrating uh, what had been provided for them. And uh, we now acknowledge this as one of the first Thanksgiving celebrations. You guys familiar with that story? Now there's some uh, debate about the historicity of uh, what we were taught in elementary school, but regardless of the fact of whether it's true or not, uh, in two weeks' time, many of us will commemorate this event. Uh, we will gather around the table with family and friends, be football and food, uh, abundance of food, turkey, there'll be cornbread, dressing or stuffing, depending on which side of the Mason-Dixon you grew up on, and of course there will be desserts, desserts galore. And we will dine together and we'll pause and give thanks. That's what we do in this country. Uh, our text this morning is the quintessential text on Thanksgiving in the Bible. This is, there's certainly this theme throughout the scriptures about giving thanks, but there's no scripture that is so exhaustive in its undertaking of explanation of this topic of giving thanks. So with this holiday, Thanksgiving, rapidly approaching, I felt like it was fitting uh, that we would look at this text this morning. So we're going to read Psalm 100. If you would turn your Bibles to Psalm 100, it's also in the bulletin. And as is our custom here at Christ Central, we'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's word. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. 
It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us to teach us, to instruct us, and more so to fellowship with you. We thank you that your word is alive and that when we come to this text, we come to meet with you. Father, I pray that each of us would be transformed today because we've encountered you, the living God. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. There are three main points in our text this morning, our text on giving thanks. First, the mandate to give thanks. Second, the motive for giving thanks. And lastly, the method of giving thanks. The mandate to give thanks, the motive for giving thanks, and the method of giving thanks. So let's begin with the mandate, the mandate to give thanks. Our text begins with a rather grandiose request, doesn't it? Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. That would have been much more reasonable had the psalmist simply said, could you please make some noise? Any noise will do. But that's not what he says. He says, he says, make a joyful noise, a noise that is inspired by internal rejoicing, not just any noise, a joyful noise. And not only that, the psalmist has the audacity to demand that this ruckus come from the whole earth. Everyone is to be involved in this joyful noise. So what's going on here? On what grounds does the psalmist make such a bold request? And the answer to that question is really foundational theology for us Christians. To give credit where credit is due, this is what our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, teaches. And the foundational truth here is that God's greatest desire is that His glory would fill the whole earth. God's desire is that His glory would fill the whole earth, that the whole earth would recognize how awesome He is and respond appropriately. That's God's desire. And what's so important here is that we realize the appropriate response to encountering God's glory is delight in Him. The appropriate response to encountering God's glory is delight in Him. John Piper says it this way. Some of you may be familiar with this quote. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God's glory is wrapped up in our satisfaction of Him. You see, contrary to Islam, where Allah simply demands submission, you see, Allah requires that His followers acknowledge who He is, and submit to him and serve him absolutely. The key word in Islam is submission. However, the God of the Bible, the one true God, is not content with mere submission. He wants more. He wants you and I, the whole earth in fact, to delight in him. And that's what this verse 1 is talking about. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. The psalmist is demanding 
that as we recognize the greatness of our God, that we respond in joyful song, that we sing out our thanksgiving. Have you ever been so excited by something that you're compelled to break out into song or maybe even dance a little bit? Anyone? Is that, is that just me? My, my wife loves to make fun of me because I love to get things done. It's like one of my favorite things to do. And, and whenever I feel like I get a significant amount of things done, I will sometimes break into song. This is true. Uh, the song is taking care of business, and no, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. <laughs> but it just happens. It just comes out. I don't plan it, but sometimes I just start singing. That's what the psalmist is encouraging here. He's encouraging joyful song that just comes out as we observe the greatness and majesty of our Lord. That's, the, that's this thing that's driving us to give thanks. And that leads us right into our second point, really the main point of our text this morning, the motive. The motive for giving thanks. We sing out because something has compelled us to do so, right? We don't just sing out for the heck of it. And the, inverse, the inverse could be said as well. We don't sing out, we don't give thanks because we don't have something that is compelling us. That's the reason why we often don't give thanks, because there's nothing that's compelling us, that's motivating us. So what is our motive for giving thanks? Or what should be compelling us to make a joyful noise? The first word in verse 3 gives us the answer. first word is no. Our motive for giving thanks is always rooted in knowledge. Daniel worded this beautiful last week when he said, our worship must be inflamed by truth. There must be knowledge of some truth in order for thanksgiving to occur. You guys remember when Paul, in Acts 17, he's talking to the Greeks on Mars Hill. You guys remember this text? And the Greeks have been worshiping an unknown God. And Paul's retort to them is, what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. Paul's critique was that their worship had no substance to it. There was, it wasn't founded in any truth. Brothers and sisters, we do not just give thanks because it's fun. We give thanks because we are motivated by some truth. And just to clarify for a minute, the Hebrew word here that we translate as no is the same word in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And I I share that with you so that you realize the knowledge that is being referenced here is not just intellectual. It's not just head knowledge that we're talking about. It's also experiential. The knowledge that motivates giving thanks is not mere awareness of some idea, but rather a profound experience of some truth. We give thanks because we've tasted something that is worthy of such a response. Which then begs the question, knowledge of what? What is God calling us to know or better to experience that will compel us to give thanks? And the answer is very simple. The text makes it plain to us. We are to know who is God, who are we, and what has God done? Who is God, who are we, and what has God done? That is the knowledge that is to form the foundation of our thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, as an aside, 
if you know the answer to those three questions, I mean really know, experientially know, who is God, who are we, and what God has done, you are set up for success. You can take that to the bank. If you know the answer to those three questions, your life will be prosperous, fruitful, you will be blessed. If you know the answer to who is God, who are you, and what God has done, you're set. So let's go there. What does the text say? Who is God? Verse 3 says, know that the Lord, He is God. And that may sound rather redundant and confusing at first glance. The point that's being made here is the psalmist is declaring that the Lord, Hebrew Yahweh, who is the higher power that the nation of Israel had been serving and had made all these glorious promises to His people, that He, Yahweh, was in fact the one true God. Now, now, since we don't live technically in a polytheistic society, this may sound a little bit confusing to us, but for the Jews, this affirmation was huge. The psalmist is saying that the God that you have faithfully been serving all your life, He is the one true God. You haven't been duped. You haven't been fooled. He is God. None of these other gods are real. Your God is the God. But what's the application for you and I? How does that apply to us? The text is proclaiming that the God that we worship in this sanctuary every Sunday morning is the one true God. Not the God of the mosque, not the God of the temple, not Mother Nature, not some relativistic conglomeration of all gods. The God of the Bible is the one true God. That is good news. That's worthy of giving thanks. Our God is God. So that's the first part. Who is God? But the text gives us more. Verse 5 gives us an even more robust answer to who is God. It reveals His character. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. So who is God? What is his character? He is good, he is love, and he is eternally faithful. That is the God that we serve. We serve a good, loving, and faithful God. And yet at the same time, I realize that many of our lives oftentimes shout the exact opposite, don't they? There is so much pain in many of our lives and the lives of those that we love that we find it so hard to believe that God is love and He certainly must not be good. And I realize that some of you are experiencing pain to that degree right now. You are experiencing pain that is making it virtually impossible for you to embrace what's being said here, that God is good and loving and faithful. And to be honest with you, I spent a lot of time chewing on this very dilemma this week. What what is the Scripture saying here? Knowing that many of your lives are an incredible argument against what is said here. And then it struck me, the very reason that this text exists is because of our lives. Because our lives are difficult and they appear to at times point to a God who is absent and unfazed by our suffering. 
If we didn't live in those difficult circumstances, there'd be no reason for this text to exist. We wouldn't need to be reminded that our God is good and loving and faithful. But we do. Our lives are painful and difficult and harsh at times. And so honestly, I believe if that is your current experience, this text is actually for you more than anyone. This text is written for you because the psalmist is begging you to trust in the character of our God in spite of your horrible circumstances. He's asking you to sing out in thanksgiving in spite of the fact that your life feels like hell. And so if that's you, I want you to chew on that idea. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to continue to work on your heart and invite the church, God's people, into your life and allow them to be with you on the journey. I have no quick fix. I have no magic pill. But I invite you to allow the Spirit to speak to you through this text and allow God's people to be with you in the suffering. The good news is that the knowledge of, our, of the character of God is not the only motivator uh, that God gives us here. The second motivator for our giving thanks is the knowledge of what He has done. The two primary works that God has done that this text highlights is that He's created us and He cares for us. Look at verse 3. It is He who made us. We are His creation, His masterpiece at that. But why should the fact that God created us motivate us to give thanks? And the reason is because the creator-creature distinction, the fact that God is the creator and we are his creation, helps, us to rem- helps to remind us that we are deeply indebted to God. Our country prides itself on independence, doesn't it? We celebrate self-made men and women. We love it when someone pulls themselves up by the bootstraps and, and makes it in spite of hard circumstances. That's what we herald in this country. But the knowledge of God as our creator reminds us that we are not self-made men and women, are we? We are created by the God of the universe. We are deeply indebted to him. We didn't get here all by ourselves. He brought us here. Our very existence is a gift from God above. And the knowledge of that truth is worthy of giving thanks. But not only did he create us, he also cares for us. Look at the second part of verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. What does that mean? Sheep of his pasture. It's hard to read this statement and not think of two other passages in Scripture, particularly Psalm 23 and John 10. Many of us probably familiar words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Or listen to the words of Jesus in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. If you ever get a chance, I highly recommend you pick up this book. It's called a Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's a book written from the perspective of a real-life shepherd. And he's explaining this metaphor of sheep-shepherd that is all throughout the Scriptures and is particularly highlighted in our text this morning. And I could share a lot from this book, but I just want to give you a few of the high points. But 
The metaphor here that God's using, this, this analogy that's helping us to understand who we are and who God is, he, he's, he's calling us sheep because sheep, unlike most livestock, they don't do a very good job of caring for themselves. They need a, a lot of extra care, right? They're not the smartest animals in the world, and they're extremely dependent upon their shepherd for survival. And because of the needs of the sheep, the shepherd must be very present highly engaged, super involved in the life of the sheep. Philip Keller points out that in order for a sheep to be able to lie down and rest, sheep must be free from fear. Our shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures by deeply caring for us, by protecting us, by sticking with us, by watching over us praying for us, and thereby dissolving our fear. The psalmist is declaring here, we have a God who deeply cares for us. And I realize that may be hard for some of you to believe. But Jesus is promising that. He's promising that care. Remember these words, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Would you lean into the care of your shepherd? Would you listen for his voice? And would you wait for him to lead you out? And it's from that place that we give thanks. From the place of recognizing, acknowledging, experiencing that God really cares for us. The final motivator for our giving thanks is the knowledge of who we are. Look again at the second part of verse 3. It says, It is He who made us, and we are His. Who are we? We are His. It's important to notice here that God's ownership of us is differentiated from His creation of us. You could merely say that God owns us because He creates us, but the psalmist differentiates the two because he wants us to recognize there is something that's happened post-creation. Something has happened after creation that causes God's ownership to be stamped with authority on us. There's an even greater reason why God can say we are His. I once heard a story uh, of a young boy who was given a model boat kit by his father. Uh, The little boy was so excited by this gift, he spent hours putting the boat together um, and when he finally got it finished, all the pieces in place, a fresh coat of paint on, he said, Dad, I want, I want to go to the ocean. I want to try it out. So they went, and they would do this every Saturday. They would go to the ocean and play with this toy boat. Unfortunately, one day they were out, and the current was too strong, and the boat was pulled out to sea, and there was absolutely nothing that the father or the child could do. The boat was lost. And the little boy wept and wept, over losing this precious boat. He was deeply saddened by the loss. One day, though, he was walking through town, and he walked by the toy store, and there in the window was a toy boat that looked just like the one he had made. And he went to examine it closer, and and after closer examination, he realized, that is my boat, you know, because he had made the boat with his bare hands. He knew its craftsmanship. And so he, he ran inside and said, Sir, you have my boat in your window. And the shopkeeper said, No, I don't. I found that boat abandoned at the beach one day. It's mine. You are welcome to buy it if you like. It's for sale. 
So the boy walked out of the store slightly defeated, but, but not willing to allow the attitude of the shopkeeper to defer him from going after this precious boat, this precious thing that he had created. So he went home and he began to do all this work. He was raking leaves and selling lemonade, whatever he could to earn a buck. And he finally earned enough money to where he could go and purchase back his boat. And he ran into the store and he slammed his money on the table and he said, I'm here to buy back my boat. And he went and the shopkeeper went and pulled the boat out of the window and handed it to the little boy. And as the little boy was walking out, he was walking down the street with his precious boat in his hands. And he said these words. He said, I made you. I lost you. I searched for you and I found you. I bought you back. And now you're mine, oh mine. It's a sweet story, isn't it? But what it illustrates is incredibly profound. What our text is making plain is that we are that little boat. We were created by God. He formed us with His very hands. And yet we were lost because of our sin. Our relationship with God was broken because of our sin. But our Heavenly Father refused to give up on us. He searched for us. He found us. He bought us back by sending His Son Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. And now, as the passage states, we are His. He speaks over us. He speaks over you and me. You are mine, oh mine. Do you know that, brothers and sisters? Do you know that? Not here, but in here. Do you experientially know that you have been purchased by Christ? Have you tasted that that truth? If so, I urge you, like the psalmist says, to give thanks. What greater thing in the world is there to be thankful for than the fact that the God of the universe has purchased you? You're His. And as a brief aside, if you're not a Christian, you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. May I be so bold as to say, if you're here, I believe that's evidence of the fact that God is searching for you. Amen? It's good news. And so we give thanks because of the fact that we're His. I want to close now with... Our last point, the method of giving thanks. I want to close with real practical application here. There are three ways that we can apply this text as seen in verse 1 and 2. The first is that we need to make some noise. Look at verse 1. The Hebrew verb in verse 1 is better translated shout. Okay, The, the translation should be shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. The point here is that our Knowledge should motivate increased volume in worship. James Boyce, who's a pastor and theologian, says in reference to this verse, the people of God are to praise God loudly because they are happy with Him. Now wait a minute. We are Presbyterians. Everything is meant to be done decently and in order. We're supposed to stand with our arms by our side and reflect on how profound the message is. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Pardon me if I'm stepping on your toes, but the text is telling us to turn it up. Amen? Amen. One of the critiques I have heard of Christ Central Church is that we can be rather somber. And the text is speaking to that. I realize that many of you, that's the way you're comfortable worshiping, and that's great. However, there's a time and place to make some noise, and it's not just at a Duke versus UNC basketball game. Amen? We need to turn it up, Christ Central Church. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we need to serve the Lord with gladness. 
Verse 2 says, serve him with gladness. I'm reminded here of a song that I used to sing as a kid. Uh, It's called, What Can I Give to the King? I'm going to read the words to you. It says, what can I give to the king? Give to the one who has everything. What can I give? What gift can I bring? What can I give to the king? And this is the first verse. Give him a heart that is opened up wide. Give him a life that's got nothing to hide. Give him a love that is tender and true. And he'll give it all back to you. And then the last verse, which I really like. Give him all glory, his people on earth. Give him all praises this day of his birth. Give him all honor and all that we do as he's given his life to you. I want, I want to show you guys something. I've got two props today. Um, this is a drawing that my three-year-old daughter gave to my wife. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't received yet any awards. Uh, I'm still waiting. I know sometimes genius takes a little while to be recognized. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's good stuff here. Um, honestly, it's actually not that good. Uh, it's, it's just not, you know, she's still working on coloring in the lines, and the color scheme is kind of lacking. Uh, but, but my wife... I was actually there when uh, the gift was given, and my, my wife loves this picture. She loves it. It's one of her favorites. I got to see when my daughter gave it to you. This is for you, Mommy, and her face lit up. And she didn't, her face didn't light up because this is like a prize-worthy drawing. It lit up because of the heart in the gift. My daughter was giving her something special. When we serve God... Uh, When we give to the one who has everything, we don't have a whole lot to offer, do we? Our service is not necessarily that good. Because we're broken people. We just give him our best, right? We offer our sketches to God. that we're, We're outside the lines. Our color scheme is lacking. But we offer that to God. We serve him by loving him, by obeying him, by loving others. And he is pleased. Not by the quality of our work, but because of the heart that we offer back to Him. So that's how we give thanks. We serve Him. And then lastly, we give thanks by, uh, we see this in verse 2 and 4, by coming. It says, come into His presence with singing, enter His gates with thanksgiving, and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. I don't have time to go into a deep explanation of why this is so, but the psalmist here is calling us to come together as a body and give thanks. To enter into God's house with God's people on God's Sabbath day and to corporately give thanks. That's a huge part of what we do every Sunday morning, isn't it? We come and we give thanks. So that's how I want to conclude this morning. I want to conclude by doing just that, by giving thanks The famous British minister Charles Spurgeon once said, in reference to this psalm, nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. Nothing is more sublime this side of heaven than singing this psalm together as a congregation. So let's do that. Let's sing this song together. Would you stand with me? with your Bible in hand, and we're going to sing, we're going we're to proclaim with some gusto, verse 1, and we're going to give thanks to our great God. So let me lead us in now. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. 
It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We have so much to be thankful for. You created us. You care for us. You are good and loving and faithful. Father, would you compel us? Would you motivate us to give thanks? Would we recognize how awesome and how glorious you are? And would we, would we be compelled to sing out, to cry out to you because you are so worthy? Thank you, God. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.